0: Open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 15. 2 Corinthians 9, 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Lord, we humble ourselves before your precious word. Open its verses and words to us by the power of the Holy Spirit and let us behold the beauty and power of our Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, Amen. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 9 ends with this verse. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Amen. Now how much can you say about the unspeakable gift? Only a little bit that he's revealed to us. Because in one of our songs we sing, it is and he is ineffably sublime. sublime. Okay. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. I would like to use adjectives a little bit for a few minutes before the Lord's Supper and us to consider how great a price was paid for our sins for us to have eternal life. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. This is one of the favorite series that I ever preached to you. It's in verse 8. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The riches of the Lord Jesus Christ and his glorious grace saving us are unsearchable. And so thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift and the gospel of Jesus Christ has unsearchable riches in it when it's rightly considered as to what Jesus did for us dying on the cross. Adjectives Modify or do what? Describe. You're looking at your little worksheet. Adjectives modify or describe. What part of speech do they modify or describe? They modify nouns. They describe nouns. So when we have a noun named life, and we have an adjective named eternal, it's eternal life. Not earthly life, physical life, marital life, but eternal life. Now on your worksheet, a little simple example. For a house that is not small, the descriptive adjective is, well, it could be large, but that's not the one I wanted, but you're right. It could be big, or it could be large. Whichever one you like, you write down. The descriptive adjective for a house that is not small is big or large. And it doesn't tell us very much. It just says that's a big house. Well, if you live in a 400-foot shack, a 500-foot shack's a big house. So it doesn't tell us very much. For a house that is not small, the comparative adjective is bigger or larger. So there's a comparison. That's why it's called a comparative adjective. It's larger, so you gotta have the other one there as well that this house A is larger or it is bigger than house B. The superlative adjective would be biggest or largest because there is nothing to compare to it. All houses are smaller than it. And this is what adjectives are adjectives describe, and they're either descriptive or they're comparative or they're superlative, meaning. They're the ultimate level of something that's under consideration. Now, the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit with other writers in the Bible, loved to exalt certain adjectives. And I just want to look at a few of those. But the verse that you're looking at, the unsearchable riches of Christ. We are not just rich in Christ, and we're not just richer But those riches are unsearchable. We can't even measure them. We can't even plumb their depths. We cannot know the full length, breadth, depth, and height of the love of Christ for us. It's unsearchable. And it is Ephesians 3 that says that about the four dimensions of the love of Christ. But notice in that verse, Paul went beyond a superlative. How do you go beyond a superlative? Can someone find in Ephesians 3.8 that Paul figured out a way to go beyond a superlative. Less than the least. Ah, that is creative. That's Paul by the Holy Ghost. Because he could have said, I'm less, I'm lesser, and I'm least. But he said, I'm less than the least. Well, how do you get less than the least when the least is as less as you can get? I love the Bible. Paul wanted to put himself where he belonged in his mind. And we want to put ourselves where we belong. Paul said he was the chief. What did he say? Was he the chiefest of sinners? He wasn't just chief or chiefer. He was chiefest. And we want to look at a few adjectives and just think about how the Bible, in trying to describe what Jesus Christ did for us, uses such terminology. Right. In Psalm 145.3 that I began with a few minutes ago, God is great and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Just like eternal life here. God's grace in Ephesians chapter 1 is exceeding. And it's beyond human knowledge in chapter 3. I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Now I preached a whole series about the unsearchable riches of Christ. I appreciate a young man in this church that saw that link in the Friday update, clicked on it, and looked at it for at least a little while to appreciate all that's there about the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking at your little page... You understand now that Paul went beyond a superlative by less than the least? The first red line, a quarter of the way down the page, eternal life is the greatest gift from our perspective. Eternal life is the greatest gift from our perspective. I've got five superlatives for you. It is not just great, and it's not just greater. It is the greatest gift that we could possibly ever imagine and then a whole lot more because the Bible says it's a whole lot more. He's got things in store for us that we've never seen, never heard, and never imagined. It's never entered into our heart or mind what is coming in the new heaven and the new earth. Mm -hmm. Eternal life is the greatest gift from our perspective. This superlative is about our benefit the comprehensive and incomparable benefits for us. And we don't need to take very long. I just want you to think about what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table. We are celebrating the greatest gift and four more superlatives after that. It includes the redemption of our souls from a debt of sin that requires an eternity in hell. It includes deliverance from eternal torment in hell. That's what the Bible teaches. We are Bible Christians. We are this simple. If the Bible says it, we believe it. And that settles it. We've chosen to bet our lives in this world and our lives in the world to come on the Bible. Because there's so much evidence for the Bible internally, externally, historically. The Bible's the only one that can really describe things that are very dear to us that we learn over time, like marriage, when you read about the Bible and what it says about marriage, you know that it's a divinely inspired book because the wisdom that it has for husbands and wives to be super happy is not written in the world because they're not super happy. Right. But we've got it in the Bible and there's so much more evidence for the Bible, but we've bet our lives in the Bible. And the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ delivered us from eternal torment. If that was just it, that is an incredibly great blessing. If that's, if that's what Jesus Christ did for us by dying on the cross, which we celebrate in a few moments. Jesus dying on the cross and eternal life by that act of his is the greatest gift by get, purchasing a pardon for us for condemned criminals on death row for the second death. We are condemned criminals on death row for the second death. It includes justification to the end that God views us as righteous as his son, Jesus Christ. It includes all legal fees for complete and final adoption as the sons of God and redemption of your... We're looking at the worksheet now. The second line under eternal life is the greatest gift. It includes adoption as sons and redemption of your body. We are still waiting for part of the adoption process to be completed, and that's to have these bodies redeemed from the power of death and the grave. Right. He's going to get his body, soul, and spirit into heaven. Amen. That's why we believe in burial. Right. That's why we don't burn them up like Hindus. Nobody burned their dead until 1963 when the Pope said it was okay. And that doesn't make it okay for us. Right. We bury our bodies because the Lord's going to raise our bodies. That's what the Bible's about, resurrection. That's why we're Baptists. We bury the bodies underwater and we raise the body back up to show a picture of what Jesus did for us and of what Jesus is going to do for us when he comes in the great day. Eternal life is the greatest gift. It includes reservation of an eternal inheritance of a new universe with God. It includes inheriting the new heaven and the new earth. There's five blanks there for you. The new heaven and the new earth. You know, we could go on and on about this great gift of what it saved us from and what it gave us. But it is the greatest gift. There has never been a gift, anything like it. Not even to be compared to it. That's why I'm calling it superlatives. Five superlatives. It includes a new glorified body that totally transcends this body. And we could go on and on. We're going to be in heaven with the Lord. To be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord, Paul said, was far better. He saw things there that he couldn't even utter, that were not lawful to utter. We don't even comprehend what's there. We can't think it. We haven't seen it. We can't imagine it. And so eternal life is the greatest gift from our perspective. From what it saved us from and what it saves us to. We only know some of it yet credible what we know makes it the greatest gift what has anyone ever given you a car so that you can have the horrendous expenses that cars have for the rest of its life just think about gifts you've been given she's going to be taken away from you i have a man here pointing at his wife that's a great gift But she can't save him from death. Mark's going to go down, whether Tammy wants him to die or not. But what Jesus Christ did for us is out of this world. Is that okay to say it that way? It's out of this world. What he's done for us in this world and what he's going to do for us in the next world. Okay, the next section. Eternal life is the gift from God's perspective. Eternal life is something, some kind of a gift... We need an adjective in there from God's perspective. It is the costliest gift from God's expenses. from God's perspective, the costliest gift. This superlative is about the cost of eternal life to God. What was paid by him to provide the gift for us. It's the greatest gift to us from our perspective, but it was the costliest gift that he could give. He gave his only begotten and beloved son that always pleased him. He gave him to what? He gave him to a cruel trial, torture, mocking, daring Roman crucifixion. God had to depart from his own son. Right. He had to turn his back on his own son so that Jesus cried in the cross, My God, my God! why hast thou forsaken me? By the nature of our debt and the nature of God's holiness, it pleased God to bruise him. The Bible tells us that it pleased God in order to give us the gift of eternal life to bruise his son. What do I need to say to you for you to graphically get the point? When Jesus stood there, on trial, and Roman soldiers put their leather fist on and punched him in the face. Who was punching him? God was. If you saw someone do that to your child, would something well up inside you? If that child meekly took it, would something well up inside you? God, through Jesus Christ, took it. He could have called twelve legions of angels, but he let them do that. They blindfolded him, and then they punched him in the face, and they said, if you're the Son of God, tell us who just punched you. How costly would that be to a father if they were doing that to his well-beloved son? How do you put it in terms? Right. When my sons aren't as, aren't as promoted as fast as I think they should, I get violent. And nobody punched them. They're doing fine, by the way. Just I'm trying to think of something to get your attention. But this is what God did for his, for his son. He bruised him for us. That's right. God had to bruise his only begotten and beloved son on your little worksheet. His only begotten and beloved son. This was the only son of God in the universe by the way he became his son. We are the sons of God, and we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, but we are not the only begotten son of God like Jesus was. God had to bruise his only begotten and beloved son. God had to ignore the prayers Of Jesus begging for help. Psalm 22, the first few verses. I cry in the day, I cry in the night, and thou hearest not. Do you think there'd ever been a time in the life of Jesus Christ when God didn't answer his prayers? Do you think there'd ever been a time from God's standpoint when he didn't answer his prayers? He wanted to answer the prayers of the Lord Jesus. So eternal life is the costliest gift. From God's perspective, God gave up his reputation to become a man for cruel Roman crucifixion. Jesus told his angels to stand down in order to fulfill all righteousness by dying on the cross. His precious blood that ran from cruel wounds was the high cost. The Bible says the precious blood of Christ in First Peter chapter 1. Angels understand it so much that they... Desire to look into these things. Okay, let's go to the third section. Eternal life is a gift from the richest. Eternal life is a gift from the richest. Look at how the Bible describes the economic transaction that took place through the death of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're supposed to know this. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. So eternal life is a gift from the richest. This superlative describes the infinite supremacy, infinite transcendency, infinite wealth of Jehovah. He owns the cattle and a thousand hills and the next hill as well and the other animals as well. Mm -hmm. God and Jesus Christ are the creators of all things and they own all souls and things. God owns all things so that we should say, what is man that thou art mindful of him? He is independently and infinitely happy, prosperous and rich without us in any way. There is no God but Jehovah. Jehovah. I could stand those Marines singing that for me right now like they did at Camp Pendleton. There is no God but Jehovah. He is the only true and living God in eternity. The rich, Solomon tells us, are proud people and they speak roughly about the poor but our God is infinitely rich with contempt for his enemies yet he saved us. That is just an incredible gift from God's perspective who he is the richest that there could possibly be. Why would he take any interest in giving anything to us, especially when we were his enemies? He is so superior that neither sins nor righteousness affect him. Do you know that about the God of heaven that we worship? I read to you from Job chapter 35. Job 35, the words of Elihu. He knew what was going down in that book. Elihu spake moreover and said, Thinkest thou this to be right? That thou saidest, my righteousness is more than God's? For thou saidest, what advantage will it be unto thee, and what profit shall I have, if I be cleansed from my sin? This is Elihu quoting Job. I will answer thee, and thy companions with thee. Look unto the heavens. We're talking about the richness of God, and it's the richest gift from the richest giver. Look unto the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than thou. If thou sinnest, what doest thou against him? Or if thy transgressions be multiplied, what doest thou unto him? If thou be righteous, what givest thou him? Or what receiveth he of thine hand? Thy wickedness may hurt a man as thou art, and thy righteousness may profit the son of man, but you can't give anything back to God. Your sins don't mess up his life, and your righteousness doesn't add to his happiness. That is what the Bible says by Elihu about the God of glory. It's an eternal life. Eternal life is a gift to us from the richest giver. Who's the richest person that's ever dealt you a favor? Since I know most everyone in this room, they were poor. The richest person that you know was poor. You say, well, they were richer than some. Okay, now you're getting the point. But they weren't the richest. But we had the richest give us a gift. Why Why would he pay any attention to us? For the glory of his grace. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Man is like a vain shadow, the Bible tells us. The greatness of our infinite creator reduces us to less than nothing. If you read Isaiah 40 last evening, we are less than nothing. We are the small dust of the scales. The old-fashioned way of weighing things in a scales, there was dust that was so small you didn't have to wipe it off because it couldn't affect the weight. And the Bible says we are the dust of the scales. The Bible says that we are less than nothing. The greatness of our infinite creator reduces us to less than nothing. His holiness demands our eternal torment. He must find any motive for our salvation in himself, apart from any benefit that he would derive from us. So eternal life is a gift from the richest. We go next. Eternal life is a gift to the poorest. Eternal life is a gift to or for the poorest. We cannot give anything to God that he has not created and given us. For all things are of him, to him, and through him, the Romans chapter 11 tells us. Our breath is in our nostrils in stark contrast to his eternal power and Godhead. Our breath is right here. A clothespin is all it takes to end your life. We're like a moth that hits the bug killer. It's over. You know, all it takes is is a clothespin. And he is the eternal everlasting God. He's from eternity to eternity. Our little brains can't even comprehend it. But that is what he is. And he is that by his own independent power. I am that I am. Eternal life is a gift for the poorest. We cannot and will not give him anything pleasing to him. For the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh... Cannot please God. That's how poor we are. We are as poor as Psalm 14 said we were earlier today. Right. Some have tried to define grace. This is what happens when you try to get men involved. Some men have tried to define grace as unmerited favor. That is not true. Right. Because we are not in a state of neutrality with God. We are enemies deserving punishment, so it is demerited favor. Because we have merited his judgment, and when he gives us the blessings of eternal life, it is demerited favor. Thank you, Lord, for showing us these shades of meaning and to set our hearts right on the knowledge of your grace. We're not neutral without ability for godliness. We are actively a God-hating lover of sin. As Psalm 14 teaches, the best of the angels are mere servants to God and we were created lower than the angels. We're poor. We have have nothing to give. How can the greatest gift with the costliest price ever paid from the richest source be given to the poorest? It doesn't make any sense. But grace isn't supposed to make sense. That's why it's called grace. Beyond distance below God, we have corrupted his ways and hate and despise him by nature. We are condemned to eternal torment at least three ways. By Adam, our first father in Eden, by the nature that still is with us, and by the practice of our own sins. We did not love him. We did not seek him. We did not seek his love. His love is independent and first. We love him because he first loved us. We were ungodly enemies of God with no reason for his care, no desire for his care, deliverance, or blessing. We were his enemies. And so the Bible tells us that for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible tells us when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. We were enemies. We were the poorest. We were rebels. We were God haters. There was no desire, no effort toward God at all. No, not one, as we heard from Psalm 14. God obscurely caused good men, fear, and guilt. When God's obscure, he terrifies his, terrifies men. Think about Job in Job 42. I repent in dust and ashes, and I abhor myself. When we see God, we abhor ourselves. That's how poor we are in comparison to him. In Isaiah 6, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, Isaiah the prophet said. We're the poorest. Peter said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a wicked man. John fell at his feet as dead. Only his internal reasons to share the universe with his son, could move him to do it. Superlatives. Is the gift of eternal life good? Great? Greater? Or greatest? Amen. Is God rich, richer, or the richest? Amen. What did it cost him? Was it the costliest gift possible? Yeah. Worse than being poor... We were enemies and God-haters. What two words, and they've been mentioned today, prove that we were rebel-haters of God? What is the subject? Total depravity. Total depravity proves we were rebel-haters of God. And that subject of total depravity is what you want to know well and where you start when you're talking to someone about salvation. Because if you start down the path of reasoning about salvation in the Bible, they are going to operate under the assumption, which is a presumption, and it's an error, that man has free will and some innate goodness, and all it needs is to be stirred up a little bit, and he will choose good things. But that is not what the Bible teaches. Right. The Bible teaches total depravity, and the whole subject of total depravity proves from many scriptural witnesses that we were rebel haters of God. Let's go to the last section. Eternal life. Eternal life is what from our perspective? Here's another angle from our perspective. We called it the greatest to start. It was the costliest to God. It was from the richest. It was to the poorest. It is the freest. It is the freest gift ever given. You know, when people give gifts, there are often said or unsaid strings attached. Uh It is the freest. There were no conditions to be met. You know, what does Santa say? If you've been a good boy, I'll come down the chimney in my red suit. But if you've been a bad boy, you're not going to get as many presents. And so we create this whole atmosphere and environment and perspective that we've got to be good to get a gift. But not when it's a gift of God's grace. We're enemies and rebels and he gives us the gift anyway without any conditions, without offering it, without options, just by the goodness of himself. And so it's the freest gift. Eternal life is the freest gift from our perspective. When we look at freest, man's condition before salvation is death. Salvation is described as birth. What what did you do for your first birth? No more than for your second birth. Or no less. Our first birth, you didn't do anything. It happened to you. And when you're born again, to have a new nature that loves God and loves others and lives right, that new nature is called a birth and you don't have anything to do with it because it's not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 13. we We're said to be dead in trespasses and sins. So how do you give the gift of eternal life to a man that's dead? You have to impart life to him. You can't ask for anything from him because he's dead. So eternal life is the freest gift from our perspective. Now, imputation is a word that you probably haven't used this last month in a sentence. Imputation in the Bible is also, it has synonyms that are count, account, and reckon. Is reckon a southern word for doing your math? Well, the Bible, puts all, the Bible makes all of those synonyms. Imputation, account, counting, or reckoning. And so God reckons, God does accounting, and God counts, and God imputes. They mean the same thing. Those four words are used interchangeably as synonyms in our New Testament. God looks at Jesus Christ's perfect life, perfect death, and accounts it to us. Amen. He imputes it to us. Right. He counts it to us. He reckons that it's ours. Amen. Then he takes our sins and counts them to Christ, accounts them to Christ in his accounting system, his quick books and their detailed books, and I don't say that disrespectfully or irreverently, his books will be opened in the great day of judgment. Our books were assigned to Jesus Christ. Right. They were reckoned to be Christ's sins. That's called justification. That's called imputation. That is how it is so free. It is simply God making an accounting change in the books of heaven. Jonathan Crosby is not guilty for his sins. I have accounted them to Jesus Christ, and I reckon Jonathan Crosby to be righteous with the righteousness of Jesus my son. And he did that for everyone in here who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's free. That is the freest gift. Eternal life is the freest gift from our perspective. Imputation means that God counted Jesus' righteousness to us. Thank you, Lord. The Bible says that he justified us freely by his grace. In Romans 3.24, if the Romans 5, five fifteen 15 and 16 and 18 says that imputation of the second Adam was given to us as a free gift three times, you know, the first Adam, why do we die? Because our first Adam chose death in the garden of Eden. That's why even babies die. That's why there's miscarriages. No one can explain death. I can explain death. The Bible tells us where death came from. It's very easy where death came from. Right. Little innocent children die, but they're not little, they're, they're little, but they're not innocent because they're guilty for the first father. You know, when a father makes poor choices for a family, the wife and the children suffer. When our first father in the Garden of Eden did not want paradise but chose death, it came upon all of us. And death is terrible. But there's another Adam, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So the Bible says, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Right. By imputation, he does it for us. And it's called a free gift in Romans 5:15, 5, Romans 5.16, and Romans 5.18. So when it, you know, we got free, we got free death from the first Adam. We didn't have to participate. Adam's sin was assigned to us. That's called original sin, if somebody wants the two words. But Jesus died for us. He lived for us. Right. And that's a sign to us, and it's called the free gift of eternal life. It's the free gift of righteousness. Mm-hmm. He that spared not his own son, listen, it's the freest gift. Romans eight thirty two. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him Freely give us all things. Amen. Amen. If eternal life was not superlatively free, then God is a debtor and man boasts of works. God's gift cannot allow our glory, can't allow our boasting, can't allow our works. It can't put him in debt. So eternal life is an unconditional gift, which we prove by seven categories of evidence from the Bible. By the grace of God, he has shown us those things. There are no offers of eternal life requiring our acceptance. There are only gifts. In the last line, there are how many offers of eternal life? No offers, but how many gifts for it? From John 17, 2. Three gifts for it. God gave the Lord Jesus Christ complete authority over all mankind. Jesus Christ gives eternal life to as many as God gave him to save. John 17, 2, which we learned today. The only means of eternal life is Jesus' death. Putting a last will and testament of God into force. When a rich man has written up his last will and testament, it has benefits for beneficiaries. God, to try to communicate to us what he's done for us, in Hebrews 9, describes eternal life as the last will and testament of God. And so Paul reasons God has written up eternal life for us that we're supposed to inherit eternal life. But how do we do that? What puts a will into force? Death. Death. You know, while a man's alive... No matter how nice the will is and how much stuff you're going to get when he dies, it's not yours until he dies. Paul reasons this way He says, A will is of no testament, a testament is of no force while the testator is alive. But God can't die. So how's he going to put his will into force? Jesus Christ. God was manifest in the flesh a flesh body like ours, so that he could die. And when God saw his son Jesus die, and Jesus took his body into heaven, three day, 40 days later, God accepted his gift of death, and the new covenant went into force. Jesus said, it is finished. The veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom, because going into God's presence was now wide open, because the testator had died. That is what we celebrate at the Lord's Supper. We celebrate the greatest gift from our perspective, the costliest from his, from the richest giver to the poorest beneficiaries, given the freest. That is what we believe about salvation, and we ought to be able to keep the Lord's Supper better than anyone else. Can we do it best? Eric, I hope you can find this song, It's alas, and didn't, it's alas and did my savior bleed listen to these words We'll sing two songs this one and one of your choice Eric Alas It's an exclamation point I'll try to give the emphasis of the songwriter Isaac Watts Alas and did my savior bleed and did my sovereign die exclamation Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? No question. Exclamation point. He indeed did exactly that. Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity. Grace unknown. And love beyond degree. Isaac Watts liked superlatives also. Amazing love. Exclamation point. Grace unknown. Exclamation point. And love beyond degree. Exclamation point. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. Thus might I hide my blushing face While his dear cross appears, dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes in tears. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Amen. Amen. And amen.